Welcome back to the Neuroscience Meets Social and Emotional Learning podcast for Brain Fact Friday and episode number 127. On using brain network theory to understand how emotions impact learning, memory, and the brain. Welcome back. I'm Andrea Samadhi, a former educator who's been fascinated with understanding the science behind high-performance strategies in school, sports, and the workplace for the past 20 years. If you've been listening to our podcast for some time, you'll know that we've uncovered that if we want to improve our social and emotional skills and experience success in our work and personal lives, it all begins with an understanding of our brain. We started Brain Fact Fridays last month to dive a bit deeper into some of the top brain strategies we uncover in our interviews or our weekly episodes, and from the feedback I've heard, these short episodes are helpful for learning about the brain in quick, easy-to-digest lessons. So we'll continue with Brain Fact Fridays, and I do appreciate the feedback. This past weekend, I was asked to be interviewed by Tifen Pan. She's the host of the Compass Teachers podcast from Taiwan. She interviews people around the globe on the most current educational topics, tactics, and resources, and she sent me a list of incredible questions that really made me think. I love taking a break from being the person doing the interviews and tune into other people's shows since I always want to learn something new that I can share, and Tifen really got me thinking with her podcast questions. Her first question to me was, What has neuroscience discovered about the relationship with our emotions and learning? And I had to think back to episode number 100 with Mary Helen Imordino Yang. She's a professor of education, psychology, and neuroscience at the University of Southern California and director of USC Center for Effective Neuroscience Development, Learning, and Education, the Candle Center. Mary Helen is an expert on learning in the brain, especially when it comes to emotions and learning. She wrote the book, Emotions, Learning in the Brain, where she talks about how we feel, therefore we learn. And that's in part one of her book and the topic of one of her most powerful YouTube publications. She's someone who I know I could spend the rest of my life following and I would learn something new from her every day. She studies the psychological and neurobiological development of emotion and self-awareness and connections to social, cognitive, and moral development in educational settings. I opened up her book, and if you've come from the field of education, you'll recognize Howard Gardner, an American psychologist best known for his theory of multiple intelligences, who wrote her foreword reminding us that 30 years ago, we had no idea that one could study human emotions that emerge slowly over time, such as admiration and awe, and compare them psychologically and neurobiologically with emotions that emerge more quickly, like surprise or fear. This is a whole other topic, and I'll be interviewing Mike Roussel on what the element of surprise does to our brain. It will be later this summer when his book, The Power of Surprise, comes out. But Gardner explained that even if we're not scientists ourselves, most of us are intrigued to learn about these new scientific findings. I couldn't agree more, and with the interest that these episodes are creating, I think you'll agree with me also. This thought from Howard Gardner, 
along with TFEN's podcast questions, made me want to put some serious thought into what exactly it is that motivates us to learn something new, and what is it that helps us to remember what we've learned. This brings us to this week's brain fact. Did you know that emotions help memories form and stick? I could spend the next year diving into this brain fact, and we can learn from Jack Panksept, a neuroscientist who concluded that humans have seven networks of emotion in the brain that begin with seeking. We're always looking for something new. The brain releases dopamine when it finds it, which awakens our perception of strong, positive, and negative emotions. Emotions form a critical piece of how, what, when, and why people think, remember, and learn. Mary Helen reminds us of this in her book, Emotions Learning the Brain. And she says it's literally neurobiologically impossible to build memories, engage complex thoughts, or make meaningful decisions without emotion. We know that humans are emotional and social beings, hence the name of this podcast, Neuroscience Meets Social and Emotional Learning, and these skills are finally being recognized as crucial in our schools and workplaces, in addition to academic and cognitive development, or the core skills your brain uses to think, read, remember, reason, and pay attention. Research shows that emotion has a substantial influence on the cognitive processes in humans, including perception, attention, learning, memory, reasoning, and problem solving. This happens because our amygdala is activated by emotional events. The amygdala boosts memory encoding by enhancing attention and perception and can help memory retention by triggering the release of stress hormones such as adrenaline and cortisol to boost arousal. When I think about the first few years, I began to learn how the brain learns from my first few sessions with my mentor, Mark Waldman. Everyone was talking about the three parts of the brain and how they interact with each other. So you've probably heard the reptilian brain or the hind brain, the oldest part of our brain. Then there's the limbic system in the midbrain or emotional brain. And then our neocortex, our forebrain, where our executive functions sit. I still think it's important to understand these three parts of the brain, especially the limbic system or the emotional part of our brain where amygdala sits, but I think it's important to change how we think about our brain from this old way where we would maybe draw the amygdala and the limbic system area of the brain and point to it in our presentations and say, this is the part of our brain that's activated when we're under stress and we experience that fight, flight, or freeze sensation. You might have heard that when we're under stress, our executive functions and the neocortex of our brain begin to shut down and students can't learn and it's difficult to complete meaningful work. You might have even heard of this being called the amygdala hijack or that the amygdala was responsible for the fight or flight response. But there's so much more involved in this part of the brain than just keeping us safe and alive. Instead of thinking about just one part of our brain, or our amygdala and how it responds to stress and impacts our learning, memory, or our ability to work, I want to use brain network theory to explore this a bit deeper. I did cover brain network theory on episode 48, but here's a review. 
When we're looking at the brain, some people use fMRI scans and other people use SPECT image scans, but I'm sure you've seen these images that show how different parts of our brain light up when we're doing different things. You'll no longer see studies that talk about the individual parts of the brain, like the amygdala or the hippocampus. You'll now see images that describe brain networks, nodes, and connectivity. This is a fascinating discovery that comes to life with these images. So when thinking about our brain learning and memory, think about how our networks are all working together. You can see an image in the show notes created by Mark Waldman that shows the key networks in our brain. And remember, this is just a metaphor of how our brain networks look. You'll see our default mode network or imagination network, which is the largest network in our brain on this map. And remember, this is just a map or a metaphor to simplify in your head how you're going to imagine these brain networks and how they interact with each other. These networks are all connected to our awareness with the star in the middle of the image, and you'll see how these networks overlap each other. The default mode network, or the eye in the diagram for imagination, contains our imagination processes like daydreaming, creative problem solving, and mind wandering, and involves those thought processes that can include worry, doubts, and fears that can stimulate our amygdala by sending a message to other parts of our brain that something important is going on that we should pay attention to. Our emotional state is governed by our amygdala, which is responsible for processing positive emotions like happiness and negative ones like fear and anxiety. And it's important to find the equilibrium between our amygdala, our default mode imagination network, and our salience or stabilizing network that's like the balancing part of the brain that thinks, weighs what's important and helps us to create the balance that we need. So using brain network theory as a tool to bring balance back to our brain, let's imagine that our amygdala, our default mode network, and our salience network are playing a game of basketball. They all need to work together to create the balance to get the ball in the basket, which is a metaphor for whatever we're working on in our daily life. When the amygdala suddenly trips, like it would be telling you that there's something you need to pay attention to, it's good or bad, and the ball goes out of bounds, it can be like our amygdala processing our emotions, and the rest of the brain needs to step in to bring the balance back. We've got to learn how to interrupt the emotion, whether it's good or bad emotion, so you can bring the balance and focus back to your brain to continue learning. The more rapidly we can change between these three networks in our day, Imagine the amygdala, the default mode, and the salience network passing a basketball back and forth to each other smoothly and quickly. You can hear the ball snapping on each of the network's fingers, creating more well-being and productivity with this balancing act. This is exactly what cognitive behavioral therapy does, but there are some simple ways to quickly bring balance back to your brain so you can gain control of your central executive network and continue learning and make those memories stick. If emotions help memories form and stick, and the amygdala is the part of the brain that tells you to pay attention to something and remember it, whether it's good or bad, we want to do what we can to bring balance to our students' brains in the classrooms or our brains in the workplace. Tip number one for our students in the classroom would be mindfulness in the classroom. We've covered mindfulness on a few different episodes, starting with episode 25, but this strategy is the most effective way to stimulate the insula 
and the interior cingulate in the brain where our awareness lies and brings back balance and well-being that's been documented in over 4,000 research studies. Mindfulness can be taught through breath work like box breathing that's a technique that's a powerful tool for anyone to use to reduce stress. It's used by athletes to U.S. Navy SEALs, police officers, and nurses, and is simple for students to learn in the classroom and hopefully take with them as a lifelong coping strategy. A second tip for the classroom would be taking brain breaks for improved creativity. When we're asking our students to give their focused attention, think about brain network theory. Focus will cause brain fatigue, and too much of it depletes your brain of glucose and depletes you. Be sure to allow your students the time to shift between their default or imagination network, their central executive or thinking network, and their salience or stabilizing network so they gain insights that are impossible during focused-only times. Allow them time to get up, rest their brain, walk around, go outside if possible, and take short breaks every hour to keep students as productive as they can be. A third tip would be the amygdala first aid station. I first saw this idea with Dr. Lori Desatel, who suggested an area for students to go in the classroom when they feel overwhelmed. Instead of causing a fight in the classroom that sometimes happens, students get up and go to a designated area that has calming lotion or something like that to allow students to reset their brain. I've put a link to some ideas in the show notes, like cups to have students share their mood for the day to calm a stressed student. I noticed when my children were home from school during the pandemic that my youngest daughter enjoyed getting up from her desk to go and pet the cat before she would go back to do her work. These short breaks gave her a brain break and reset her focus for her next work session. I know we can't have cats in our classrooms, but I can see how fluffy pillows could work just as well for students like my daughter who can tend to get overwhelmed with her work. Dr. Lori Desatel, she's an assistant professor at Butler University who's been on the podcast a few times. She mentioned that students enjoy learning about their brain and how they can use this knowledge to improve their behavior and focus. She said when we teach students about the amygdala, the hippocampus, neuroplasticity, and the prefrontal cortex, it gives the brain science. It objectifies their behavior. Many of her undergraduate students said they wish they would have known neuroscience in middle school because students think something's wrong with them when they exhibit negative behavior. When students understand the science behind it, it intrigues them, and they're challenged to change those hardwired circuits. If you really want to capture a student's attention in the classroom, teaching them the basics of how their brain works, especially to help them to achieve their goals, will fascinate them. Now, what about using the brain in the workplace for improved results? My first tip is to find your balance and allow creativity to flow. The way to experience optimal health and well-being that's crucial for success in the workplace is to create that balance that we talked about with our default mode, our imagination network, our central executive thinking network, and our salient stabilizing network. Notice when you're out of balance or you might be overly anxious. That means your default mode network may be overly active and you might be worrying. So learn to switch to a different brain network since spending too much time with the imagination can lead to ruminating thoughts. So switch to your central executive or thinking network. How do you do this? Get to work on something and notice there's no time to worry. 
work as long as you can, and then switch to your stabilizing your values, your social awareness network to bring the balance back. Give yourself a break. When we give our brains breaks, it allows for those creative insights to flow during our imagination resting states. And this is the time we can have breakthroughs like the 20% time policy at Google, where the company's engineers get a day a week to work on whatever they want to keep their creativity flowing. See how you can replicate this process with your work. A second tip, tap into your motivation network. Your motivation network is what gets you out of bed in the morning and pushes you to seek out anything that has a pleasurable reward. This circuit is located in the nucleus accumbens of the brain and is driven by your instinct and curiosity. And that's one of Jack Pancept's core emotions. Pancept was an Estonian neuroscientist who mapped out seven emotional circuits in the mammalian brain, which is the hindbrain, and play is one of them. We went deep into the importance of having fun with our work on episode number 27 with Frederike Fabricius on Achieving Peak Performance, where she spoke about the importance of having fun with our work, bringing us to those higher levels of peak performance. Pancept identified another emotion called seeking that keeps us moving forward, engaged in new and interesting activities and work throughout our lifetime. If you've lost your motivation for your work, it's time to look, or like Pancept would say, seek something that your brain will find new and interesting, and that will bring you joy. And this will engage you at the brain level. A third tip, listen to your second brain, your gut instinct. Have you ever made a decision based on your gut instinct? Neuroscience tells us that the mind-gut connection is not just metaphorical. Our brain and gut are connected by an extensive network of neurons and a highway of chemicals and hormones that constantly provide feedback about how hungry we are or whether or not we're experiencing stress and many other important signals. You can strengthen your second brain with mindfulness, opening the door to one of the most powerful tools you can use to help you to become more self-aware and socially aware as you'll begin to sense what others need and want. I once asked a business executive who was the last step in my interview process for this job I really wanted after she offered me the position, and I asked her, what made you choose me for the job? I wanted to know what she would say, and the answer that came from the seasoned executive was not at all what I expected. She said, I went with my gut instinct, showing me the power of using our second brain or our gut when making decisions in the workplace. So now that our brain is primed for learning, how do we make our memories or learning stick? We remember John Dunlusky focused on the importance of spaced repetition for memory formation on episode 37. He talked about practicing a skill over and over again. And we know that memories aren't reliable from episode 44, that each time we recall something from our past, it changes. But what exactly is happening in the brain when we remember something? Neuroscientist Joseph Ledoux explains memory consolidation. He says consolidation is what happens when a memory persists. When you have a memory, it goes into short-term memory, and if for some reason the memory isn't consolidated, long-term memory doesn't occur. The conversion of short-term memory to long-term memory is called consolidation. This process involves that the neurons in the brain that are forming the memory undergo protein synthesis. And this is basically that the proteins glue the memory together. 
reconsolidation occurs when the memory that is fully consolidated is reactivated or retrieved. And it has to go through a whole other phase of protein synthesis in order for that memory to persist into the future. If you block protein synthesis after retrieval, you prevent the storage process and disrupt the memory. This is important because each time we retrieve a memory, we have to update it. He simplifies this by saying, when we first meet someone, we have a memory of that experience. When we meet that person again, we retrieve that first memory, and whatever else we've learned about the person in the meantime, it's added to form the new memory. So to not forget this memory, it has to be stored and updated with what we remember from the past and what we add to it in the present moment. So it's not like watching a video of exactly what occurred the first time, which is the old view of how our memory works. What's really happening is that every time you take a new memory out, you must put it back in, and this forms the new memory. So can we forget certain memories? Ledua explains that it is possible for people who've had a traumatic experience that they'd like to forget to give them a substance that would block the protein synthesis and prevent memories from forming, which is called reconsolidation blocking. And it doesn't erase the memory, but it just dampens the impact of the memory so it's less troubling or arousing when it's remembered later. So to review this week's brain fact, did you know that emotions help memories form and stick? This episode, we went deep into where our emotions begin in our brain with strategies to balance our brains using brain network theory in our classrooms and workplaces so we can easily take in new information and understand how we can retain it. We know that memories linked with strong emotions often become seared in the brain. And we can even test this theory ourselves by thinking back to certain memories you might have in your life and see what you can remember about that event. What do you remember about September 11th, 2001? Do you remember anything about September 10th, 2001? I couldn't tell you anything about September 10th. Not what I ate for breakfast that day, or even much about the house I was living in at the time. But the day after, for some reason, everything seems crystal clear to me. I can see the television that I turned on while I was getting ready and saw those planes crash into the Twin Towers. And I can remember the sun coming in the windows, even how the shade went on the carpet of the house. The rest of the day is pretty clear as well, proving that emotions really do make memories stick. I hope this episode has helped you to imagine our brains in a new light using brain network theory, how we can prime our brain for optimal learning to ensure that what we learn goes into our long-term memory and how to make those memories stick if we want them to. See you next week. enjoying the neuroscience meets social and emotional learning podcast please don't forget to subscribe so you'll stay up to date with our new episode while you're there please feel free to give us a review or a five-star rating as it helps others find us for more information on our programs books and tools for schools and the workplace visit us at www.achieveit360.com 